Father, we come before you thankful for how you fill Jen with your spirit. I just thank you for her soft heart and the way she's poured herself out at your feet. Um, I, I thank you for when she brings words of chastening from you and words of joy. So I'm asking you would anoint her message again today. Teach us things that you want us to know um, as we're able to bear it. Um, and pray you give us open ears and eyes to see what you're saying. In Jesus' name. Good morning. All right, I'll pray for like one more sec. Hold on. All right, so Lord, um, I just pray patience um, and soft hearts to receive what you're saying this morning. I just thank you, Lord, that you chasten and encourage us and um, thank you for just being such a good father. We just thank you again for um, the um, amazing amount of availability that you um, that you make yourself so available to us. Um, we love you and we worship you. It's a joy to worship you. Um, and so, yeah, give us just tender hearts um, this morning to receive what you are trying to lead us into. In Jesus' name. All right. Okay, so... I titled this um, Leaving Dead Works Behind. So um, really this, there's an exhortation that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach a message, but really it's a word of encouragement from the Lord. Um, in Isaiah 11, you don't have to go there, but in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch grow out of its roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Um, and um, there's, there's just something about these literary, like, um, clumping two things together, you know, the wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And one that has really been grabbing my heart a lot lately is this um, idea uh, that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of counsel and of might, that they, are back, they go back and back, that the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit is, um, does both of those things in tandem. Um, so I really want to start this message off with um, a testimony that some of you have heard uh, just something the Lord taught me in our, um, we sing the word on Tuesday nights. And um, so I'm going to go to Isaiah. We're in the book of Isaiah. We started this in May um, with the fast, when we were fasting and praying for Israel. We started in May and we are now, Alice, how far are we? It doesn't matter. We're halfway-ish. We're halfway-ish. Um, so I don't know how much longer it's going to take us to get through all of this. Um, but I just, there was something that happened um, in a couple of weeks ago that really caught my attention, which I think you actually were there for. Um, and this is, I sh so I, sh I went live and I shared this because we have a little group of the, the few of us that are singing the word. And I shared it in there. But I just want to share it with all of you because it kind of um, has really... Um, been a little bit of a perspective shift for me, and it's it's really helping me. Sometimes the Lord just says kind of a same thing in a little bit of a different way, and you're like, oh, okay. You know, it's like why one math teacher can teach you, and you don't get it, and you don't get it, and you don't get it, and then somebody else says it in just a little other way, and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. So this was just kind of one of those aha moments for me. Um, and this is Isaiah 30, um, verses 19 through 20. Um, and the Lord is just talking about Israel kind of coming back. And it says, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. They shall weep no more. Um, he will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry when he hears it and he will answer you. So this is a promise from the Lord. 
And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, um, what a beautiful promise. You're going to quit shoving the people that are trying to help you in the corner. You're going to start listening to the Lord. He's going to start giving you direction. This is all very good. Um, And then verse 22 is the zinger. You will also defile the coverings of your images of, of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. So he's talking about their idols. Um, he's like, you're, and he says, you will throw them away as an unclean thing, and you will say to them, get away. So um, he's saying, you're going to discard your idols and say, get away from me um, as an un, unclean thing. You're not going to want them anymore. And so what this, and then just... In Isaiah 64, I want to read that too, and then I'll tell you my point of these two things. Because it uses this phrase, unclean thing, again, um, over in Isaiah 64, and this is 6 and 7. And it says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Just six. Um, And so this this phrase, unclean thing, what it literally means are menstrual rags. Um, and so we, when we're singing, I'm at the piano, and then we had a bunch of us that night. So there's probably five of us all in a row, and our friend Laura was at the end, and we're kind of, we sing sometimes verbatim the verses and sometimes just like what we feel like the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And, and typically, we just kind of go down the line and take turns. So it gets to her turn, and she has a different translation than the New King James, because in the New King James, it translates it unclean thing. And um, because it's like being polite, I think. But it gets to her, and her translation literally says menstrual rags. And she tends to sing more like verbatim the verses. And so she sang that, and, um, and, and then it loops back around. So I was next. But I just kept the Lord really um, kind of through that whole next cycle as we went through. I just um, kept thinking about it um, and how cool it was that we kind of landed on that part when she had a different translation that literally says what it is. And I just, the Lord really like opened my eyes and started talking to me about this, about this idea of, um, and I, and I had the memory, we weren't in Isaiah 64, but this memory of, oh, also our righteousness is like these unclean things, like these filthy rags that we would throw away. And, and what God was just really telling me um, in that moment was, hey, stop thinking of the gross part of it. Because when we got done, we always like debrief for a minute kind of when we're done and we turn the stream off and we talk about it. And Laura's like, yeah, I really did not want to sing that, but it's what it said. And I honestly, I probably would have skipped over it. And so it's, it was cool to just see her strength and kind of that faithfulness to just say what the word says and, and not like be apologetic about it. And it was very helpful to me because kind of what the Lord is saying, like, John, you're so caught up on, like, the gross factor of it. Like, let that go. Well, what is menstruation? And I was like, well, it's just like there's no baby. And your body's letting it go. And he's like, yup. And and just kind of like everybody's taking their turns. They're singing. And it takes us a while. Like, when we have five people to, like, kind of get through that whole cycle, what is that, like, probably ten minutes? It felt like a really long time that I'm just thinking of this with the Lord. And he just started talking to me, and, and I was just imagining, like, he's like, you would never keep all of, all of those filthy rags, right? You wouldn't keep them. You know, you just throw them away. You've never met anybody that just keeps that. No, you just throw it away. And I was like, yeah, you just throw it away. And he's like, well, what would you think if somebody, like, kept all that and started praying for it to come to life? I'm like, I've never thought of this. I've never occurred to me to be like, come back to life. It was never alive. But, you know, it's not like it's, it's dead and we throw it away, but there was no chance of life. That's why it's not in your body anymore. It's not even like a, a, like a stillborn child that you're, that you're mourning. He's like, you don't mourn it. And he's just taking me on this whole thing. He's like, it's thoroughly dead. It was never alive. There was no chance. Go back. Your idols and your righteousness were never alive. There was never a chance. You don't ruminate over them and mourn over them and pray over them that they would come back to life. 
they were never alive. And I was like, oh, this puts a really big spin on it. And kind of the gross factor of talking about menstruation kind of kept me from ever like dwelling on this. But I was just so thankful that she's saying that, those words, and the Lord just had this chance to talk to me about it. Um, and so when he says your righteousness is like a filthy rag, what he's saying is your works are dead, right? When he found you, were you kind of alive or were you completely dead? There's a right and wrong answer. Steph, what'd you say? We were completely dead, right? There wasn't some like goodness about us. And, and I know like, I know we talk about this a lot and Tom Stoltz says this all the time. I wasn't like one of the good people that God was like, well, this looks like, like when you go thrifting and you're like, well, it's a little worn, but I think I can bring it back to life if I just fix it up a little and polish it. None of us were like that. There was, there was no, there was no goodness to uh, all of our righteousness was not alive. Um, and so I was just thinking about this, like, what is righteousness? And, and um, so I just made this list that I felt like what the Lord was talking about, like our righteousness, his righteousness, righteousness of any person. This is like, it's how we think. It's the way that we're making our decisions. Um, it's our opinions. Our opinions get informed by like what we deem is right or wrong, um, good or evil. Um, it's our course of action is stemming from our righteousness, the, our judgment calls, how we handle situations, um, how we problem solve and we try to fix things. Our, our righteousness informs our priorities and the things that we think about and the things that we give our mental space to and dwell upon. It's what we consider good and evil, right and wrong, right? Um, everybody has a righteousness. Um, I, ju- I think about parenting. Parenting is a funny one because we're all doing it a little different, at least a little different. Some of us are doing it like really, really differently. And, and one of the reasons that we are, get so opinionated about parenting and so defensive about parenting and care so much about it is because, like, we care about it. We form strong opinions about it and methods um, because it's so attached to our own righteousness and our own, like, um, making decisions about what is good and what's wrong in this really important area of our life, which is raising our kids. I think it's a really easy way to see, like, we all kind of have our own little idea of what's right and what's wrong. Um, The Lord is like super clear that all of us are born um, with no no righteous, our self-righteousness isn't actually righteous. And that's why we need it. If Jesus wouldn't have died, if we didn't need his righteousness. Um, in Psalm 51, 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I have heard people say that this is evidence that David is trying to say, oh, his mother was cheating on his dad. And that, you know, and that's not, that's not what it's saying. He's saying, hey, all of us, I was born. So you could say this. I would, we, I was brought forth like from the moment I breathed my first in iniquity. Um, and in sin, my mother conceived me like the world is broken. I was born broken. I've got broken parents. I'm going to have broken kids. Like it's all just kind of broken. We needed a savior. Um, and so if, if we're kind of all in this condition, this is not alarming to the Lord and it's not it's not something that he's wringing his hands and he's worried about. But what happens when we receive him, but I would, I, would, I would say it is more than receiving salvation. It is, it is walking out our salvation in fear and trembling when we get to that part. It's like you can receive that you need forgiveness in a moment and recognize it. But I would say it's, and I would just say it because I can see it in my own life, it was something different to recognize, oh, 
all of my opinions and the way I make decisions, the, my judgment calls, the way I handle situations, the way that I pro try to problem solve and fix things, everything that I'm thinking about and all my priorities, they're all wrong. I have to walk out this sanctification process and let him completely conform my thoughts into his own. Like they're two different things. And when you start letting him touch that part where you're like every day, like it's getting shorter and shorter, right? So I used to have days, I mean, I would be like, yes, I definitely, like within this last week, I've thought about God, definitely, for sure, prayed, talked to him. And then, but at some point it became like more than once a week. And it was like, well, like at least once today I thought about him. And do you, like if you're moving forward with the Lord, more of your headspace is being consumed by him, Right? And here's a funny thing about your headspace being consumed by the Lord. It is enlightening that your works are dead and that you have to transfer. All of, all of these things must be transferred into um, listening and obeying him. And there is a, a great level of mourning that comes with that. So if you're moving forward with the Lord, there's pain that you feel now that you weren't feeling then. Like, is this anybody else's testimony? You feel, I actually was thinking about you this morning. You feel pain, I feel pain today that I did not feel when I was first saved. Why? Well, I'm letting him near me with a double-edged sword. It's like a surgeon's scalpel. And, and I'm not like... Thank you for saving me, but stay away from me. And I'm, you know what I mean? Like, I've got some faith going. I believe that he needs to touch those parts, and I'm letting him touch those parts. And it hurts because dark things are being exposed. Your works are an outflow of the, the righteous voice that you're listening to on the inside, Right? If I'm listening to my own self-righteousness, my works will be dead. And if I'm listening and obeying God's righteous voice inside of me, my works will be alive. Um, let's go to John 14. Um, verse 15. There's so much. Could probably just teach on John 14 through 17 for like a year because every sentence feels like it's so much. He said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me, he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make, and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Um, verse 21, it says, he who has my commandments and keeps them. And I would just bounce back to the spirit of counsel and of might. If you have, he ha we have his commandments, that's his counsel, and we keep that by his spirit, we have the might to keep them. We are mostly led, um, I would say mostly by our soul that leads our body and our spirit is like kind of forgotten behind. Um, and then, you know, depravity are the times when our body leads and then our 
soul and then our spirits behind. And what the Lord is converting us into is being the spirit is the leader, our soul comes behind it, and our body is last. And so it's interesting. So we're talking about works, which are the end product of spirit, soul, body. And when my kids were little, I know I've said this before, when my kids were little, I would, we'd be in the grocery store and I'd say, walk behind me like ducks, like ducklings. And they would, they were good. They would, you know, when they were kind of too, too old to sit in there and they would walk behind me like right in a row. And so there's like a proper order to this. Our works are the external manifestation of our internal leadership. So like when you imagine your three-year-old and they're losing their mind, right? You can have enough wherewithal in your soul. And you know this because people who are not led by the Holy Spirit, people who are not Christians at all can be decent parents and have soul knowing to control their body, their own body, (laughs) and deal with this child. But it doesn't make it a spirit-led interaction, right? You can have somebody who's completely out of control, has no control, and they let their body have control, and they, like, haul off and smack their kid, right? That's not good. And so that's your body kind of controlling your emotions, your will, and then your spirits, like, somewhere. But parenting with the Holy Spirit is a different thing, where you're, you're talking to Holy Spirit, and you can see and understand and discern spiritual realities that are happening in that room. And so not only can you, you know, you're not going to lose your cool, you're not going to lose your mind on them, you're not going to join them in their fit. You're not going to use some breathing exercise to bring it down and tell them it's okay, although that's better than not hitting them. (laughs) But there is something that you could discern in the spirit that would be ultimately helpful. And you could have a really good work because you were led by the spirit, not by your flesh, and really not by your soul either. Being led by the spirit informs what you're thinking and your emotions and all of that stuff. And then your body is able to follow with a work. You're going to say the words. You're, not, you're going to not say the words. You're going to do the things that the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. Um, Go to James 2. um, 14 through 26. And it says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? So this is really... um, This is, James talks about these kind of, like, these spiritual issues, this issue of faith and works, um, very pointedly, more than probably anybody else in the New Testament. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can faith save him? Now, faith would be talking about a, all the way to the end, the spiritual thing. And he's like, well, is your faith, you're saying you've got faith here in the spirit realm, And what James is saying, like, there's a connection between this and the bookends, right? Like, your body, your works should be doing something based on what's going on in your spirit, man. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you know what? Do you want to know, foolish man, what faith without, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see 
then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So he's saying anybody can be like, oh, I have faith. Like anybody can say that just like anybody can do good works. Do you know what I'm saying? Anybody can say they've got this, and anybody can mimic this. But just like, so we talk about this a lot, like the fruit of your works is the evidence that you were obeying God or not, that you're doing it in the spirit and not in your flesh. Because he's saying you can't fake the works of the Holy Spirit because there is good fruit there. Um, and but the uh, like this other one is true too. I feel like I'm getting lost in these high and lofty thoughts. Of if you're saying you have faith, but there's no um, external manifestation of it, you don't really have faith. And so we think of works often as things we are doing, but what we don't do is just as important as what we do do. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like this back and forth of like. Somehow the Lord in all of this is asking us to examine our works. Um, In Philippians 2. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Oh, I even had my thing in there. I didn't really have to flip. This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Um, that second verse, 13, um, in the New Living Translation, it says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the, to, and the power to do what pleases him. The desire, the counsel, and the power, which is the might, to do works. And look at the work, look at his good work that he's doing in you, which is he's giving you the desire and the power to do it. Like he's working in us as he gives us the ability to do works that are of him. The Lord is doing a good work of helping our will by providing counsel and giving us the ability to do by providing the might. Our work is to participate in these two things unto our salvation. That's what working out your salvation means. Letting the Lord change your soul, your will, what you want to do, the way that you're thinking, your opinions, the way that you're looking at problems, the way that you're trying to fix things, all of, all of your righteousness. He, changing that and and therefore the output is changing what you're doing the way you're spending your time the way you're thinking about things the way that um you're biting your tongue and and not telling everybody your opinions or having waiting until you know you've heard from the lord instead of just forming opinions like having that self control um in hebrews 4 there is a little verse that really caught my attention a couple of weeks ago. Um, And it's in verse 2. This is what caught my attention. Um, And it's talking about the Israelites. It says, but the word which they heard did not profit them because it wasn't mixed in faith by those who heard it. And so... um, when the Lord speaks to us, it's almost like, I just kept imagining this morning like a catcher's mitt that's like in here. <laughs> like, do you ever try to play catch with little kids that actually like developmentally, they can't even do it yet, you know? And they're so cute. And they're just, you know, doing this thing and the ball's on the ground. <laughs> like, but they're going to get there someday and, and they're learning the game. I mean, it's better. You remember the first time you like threw a ball at a kid and they didn't even know that this was... You know, like they didn't even put their arms up and they just got hit in the face by a ball. And um, 
Oops. And so there's like this thing. So we're just like these little kids that don't even know what's going on. But I saw like this catcher's mitt in, in your belly. And what is going on internally determines when the Lord is like throwing his word like a ball at us. Because um, we're, how many of you, how many times have you asked God, I just want to hear your voice? Just even this week. Like, think about how many times. I just want to see. I just want to hear. Well, (laughs) you can't just have this, like, rope prayer that we're just throwing over and over and over at God because he's like, well, actually, it's a two-way thing. What you have going on inside of you already is, like, the catcher's mitt that can catch. Uh, Another way he's, parable that he gave about it was this good soil. So imagine the good soil is like the catcher's mitt that can catch the seed and grow something. So it's similar. So he's throwing these words at us, but what is inside determines whether it lives or dies, whether it's going to become a fruitful work or a dead work. So if what you have inside to catch it um, is doubt, like we cannot take doubt more seriously in this hour. You're not a victim of doubt. Like, there's a certain sin that we feel like we're victims of, fear. I always think of fear as feeling like one of those things that we're a victim of, right? Because things get scary, and you typically feel like a victim. Doubt is, you are not a victim of doubt. <laughs> it's sin. You have to repent of it. You have to come out of it. He, like, he knows, like, the Lord is that um, double-edged sword, and he's dividing where we are making excuses for doubt and, and where we really... Um, got caught off guard by it, but make war against doubt. Because if that is what you have to catch God's words that you're asking him over and over and over and over to tell you, it will profit you nothing. That's what it says. It did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. If you've got faith inside because you ask God for it, I mean, there's no way to get it except to ask him for it, to confess that you don't have enough of it or you want more or you don't have any at all, and, and he'll put it inside of you, and it can catch what he is saying and grow faith inside it. Like, grow, like, the word that he's giving you will fall into that good soil of faith, and it will grow something. If you have fear trying to grab the words of the Lord, it's, it's akin to doubt. It'll all die. Like, all of our works will be, it won't matter that he spoke to us. Do you ever think about how many words God has spoken to you? Like, I'll never know. I don't know how much he's spoken to me. I know I didn't catch it all. I know I misheard a lot of it, which a lot of that is just immaturity, which is fine. We're growing up into it. But much of it is I couldn't even hear it. So if we have a faith walk that is constantly asking God to talk to us, talk to us, talk to us, talk to us without saying, I believe probably this week you said some things to me that I could not receive, um, I missed. Why? Can you show me why? Some of it might be our immaturity. Some might, you know, like, but some of it is because we've got some of these sins going on inside of us that can't catch it. Um. Can we go to this whole passage right here in, um, in Hebrews 4? Um, it talks about the rest of the Lord, and it actually gives the example of Joshua, um, who, who was there the first time that God tried to lead people into the promised land, and, and he was there when they actually did go into the promised land. So I just want to take us to the story um, in Numbers 13. Of when this happened. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay, Numbers 13. And I'm going to summarize and just get really skipping through this. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he says, so this is before their 40 years of wandering. This is before it. And he said, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Um, And God already says it, which I am giving to the children of Israel. (laughs) He he didn't say, go look at it for no reason. He's already told them what his intention towards them is. I'm going to give it to you. Um, From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man. So there's, you know, all the tribes, what, 12? And so there's like a a guy from each tribe is going to go. 
and then he names them. Um, and, and Moses tells them, um, like I'm skipping to like 18, um, and he tells them to look and see whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, like go look and see what's going on there. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was in the season for the first um, ripe grapes, and then we're skipping um, now they departed and came back to Moses. This is verse 26. And Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, which they had one cluster of grapes they carried in between them on a pole. It was so big. I've never had a cluster of grapes so big. I needed like a big stick and two strong guys to carry it. So this is quite the cluster of grapes. Um, so they brought it, so they, this is the good thing they've got bringing back. And here is the report. Then they told them and they said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless. So there's like one short sentence of like, here's the fruit. Nevertheless. However, the people who dwell in that land, they are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take the possession, for we are well able to overcome it. It's like, no, you're not. Because listen to what they just said about all the people that are there. All of these guys that went, they all, their eyeballs all saw the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, they all saw the giant cluster of grapes. They saw the fruit of the land, that it is land flowing milk and honey. But they all, you know, Caleb's not blind. He saw the adversaries, and he's not saying you're wrong. But he is saying, let's go up at once, for we can take possession of it. So the output came into him, and he had something different inside that caught it. And so listen to what he's saying, because they're making a decision about the work that they're going to do. Like, there's going to be an external manifestation of the, like, the decision that they're going to make. And he is saying hey, I'm trying to lead you toward a good, alive work by saying, um, we can do this. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. It's like a bad report. It devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants. It's getting worse and worse. We saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Um, and so, like, long story short, um, it, there's a couple of guys of faith. Joshua and Caleb are giving a faithful account. Faith. And it's not heeded by the people. And essentially, they kind of take a vote and decide, no, we're not doing that. We're not. It would be better. Let's just go back to Egypt. We'll die. I mean, they're drama about it. Let's go back and die. Then go do that. And what was the fruit of that? What's the dead work, literally the dead work that they did for 40 years? They wandered. Um, and so this is why... There's no voting in church <laughs> because churches shouldn't be led <laughs> by the people. They should be led by faithful voices, people that are listening to the Lord. All of those guys, they, they didn't have faith to receive it. And so that's what back in that passage in Hebrews 4, that's what it's saying. They, this is what he's talking about. They didn't have faith to receive the word of God. And so they were in, entered into 40 years of futility. Um, I want to go to 1 Samuel. I'm doing okay on time. Let's go to 1 Samuel 15. 
because I just want to talk about um, a, a pit that we can really fall into is getting really attached to our dead works and invested in them, maybe even married to them. Um, and this is, this is just the passage of when Saul is rejected as king. Remember, like, he's told to kill, who's the guy? Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And, and what's that? This is, um, I'm sorry, this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I'm a little summarizing because um, I don't need to go through everything. Um, um, Samuel shows up and confronts Saul because what the Lord had specifically told him was like, kill everybody, kill all their animals, all this stuff. And he doesn't. He kind of mostly does, but he kind of gets into his own logic, his own, excuse me, his own righteousness, right? Your righteousness will take what you were told and be like, well, let's apply some common sense to this. And he's like, I, well, I kept like these really good animals because I'm going to sacrifice them and that'll make God happy. And I didn't kill the king. And, and then Samuel comes and confronts him. Like we know the story. Samuel comes and confronts him and is like, no, this is not okay with the Lord. Um, he says uh, for rebellion, he called this rebellion. And the Lord knows the difference, right? This was not immaturity. This was rebellion. Um, and it says that you've rejected the word of the Lord. And so he's rejected you as king. And what I just want to show you is down in, let's see. Um, verse 24, it says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people, and I obeyed their voice. So he's like passing the blame on to other people. Basically, I mean, he is saying like, I feared them, but he's kind of like, pointing at them. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel was like, "Uh uh-uh, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. Then this is just the funniest thing. Like Saul is so caught up in the moment of it. And he says, I have sinned. I get it. But in this moment, please honor me. Honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned Back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, oh, Samuel kills Agag. Um, and then it says at the end, um, Samuel, that Samuel would not see Saul again until the day of his death. He never saw him again. The word of the Lord departed from Saul. But can you just see like this weird thing where he's like in the moment, he's like, well, it looks like what I could salvage was to not lose face with all of the people and tr- being afraid of their opinion was got what got me in all this trouble anyway, instead of just like rending his garments and being like, okay, like what should I do? He could have asked Samuel, what should I do now? Like, you know, there were a, a lot of different ways that he could have responded, but he was so invested in this dead work of pleasing people that he, um, it's like he was married to it, and he couldn't let go of it. Um, and I just feel like I feel this. You know, as people that are trying to hear the Lord and growing and learning to hear the Lord, like there's a lot of places where we're like trying to please God and missing a lot. And, and the spirit of the Lord would say, hey, when I reveal that that wasn't really what I was saying or that I wasn't in that, like, you have to let it go. Um, uh, this morning I was um, in my bathroom and, like, our backyard is kind of, like, our bathroom window looks out in our backyard. And all of a sudden I just remembered that we had a meeting there. We used to do these kid worship nights. 
some years ago. It's been some years ago now. And um, I remember like inviting everybody over and kind of, you were there. Were you there, Tatum, in my backyard for this? Yeah, do you remember that? And, and the Lord was like, that was dead. And I was like, I know it was, because you know what happened? I think we had one, and I really sat down and was like, okay, God, because it felt responsible, and somehow if I poured some of me into it, it would make it better and make it go. And we, I think, only met one time because the renovations in this room started. So we didn't have, um, we had moved kind of like moved all of our sanctuary stuff down to the basement and it was not a good environment for kids to be running around. So we didn't do it. And then COVID started and we, we have not done it since. And the Lord was just like, I can twist that story inside of me and be like, well, it didn't turn out, but the Lord really, he did tell me to have that meeting and to get everybody to come over to my house, like this stuff. And he was like, no, it was, that wasn't me. And it's like, well, okay. But it's been three, three and a half years, three years. And so it's just easier to let go. It's easier to let go now than it was in the moment. But we have a lot of stuff that we just need to be like, well, I don't know. I don't think that was the Lord and, and move on with. Um, the woman at the well in John 4. I'm getting there. I love the way that she responds to the Lord telling her a lot of her life, her whole life, basically. Everything that she's been doing is not working and it's dead. Um, so he's asking for a drink. And in verse 10, Jesus um, says to her, because uh, she's like, why are you talking to me? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that says this to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Oh, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Um, so she's not getting it. And the well is deep. Where then did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? So she thinks he's being weird and bragging. Jesus answered to her and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become to him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And this is just a picture of the futility, right, of needing water. And we don't feel it as acutely because we have our own personal, like, wells that come into our kitchens and our bathrooms and our even our basement to wash our clothes and all of these things, but the futility of needing to go and fetch water. And he's like, well, the, the dead work of having to do this over and over again to keep your own self alive. And he's like, there is a living work. The Holy Spirit is given to us to be inside of us like a fountain of living water to be a living work that is always alive and flowing. And, and I'm telling you guys, like, it's like when a, ho a, a, a hose has been off for a long time and it's doing the, like the sputtery, like we're just sputtering. Like we're just at the beginning of this flow of the Holy Spirit, that living water inside of us. They, they have this whole encounter. Um, and at the end, in verse 28, it says, the woman then left her water pot she left her dead work, right? And she went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So she left the dead thing. She went and was like, hey, somebody outed me. All of my sin. He knew all my junk. He knew all the dead things that I had been doing and the ways that I had been trying to fix my life. And he called me out and she didn't hide from it and she didn't make excuses about it. She's just like, she, because she's overcome that she may have um, found, he found her, but she may have found the Messiah. And she goes immediately into a living work of telling other people, pointing them to Jesus. Immediately, she left her dead work and started pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. 
So what was it in her that didn't self-defend and didn't try to hold on to what was dead? Maybe she was desperate. Let's go to um, Acts chapter 9. We see this um, with the Apostle Paul as well. This is startling, really, when you think about it. Um, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. This is 9-3. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then he tells him what to do. But listen to that sentence. Like, this is so short. It's so short. How old was this man at this point? How long had he been investing in his opinions, his view, his own self-righteousness, his... um, his own interpretation of the scriptures, really digging into what was going to make God happy to the point where he's sending people off to be killed. I mean, that's commitment, right? He probably didn't take any, I mean, he probably was like, I hate doing this. I hate it. But this is righteousness is to send these people off to be killed. A light shines. Somebody asks him a question he, he, he asks a question back. He gets an answer. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He immediately dropped what was dead, decades probably, of invested into a way of life. He let it go in a second. He believed God. I mean, it was a pretty miraculous thing. He blinds them. It's the the big light. He believes the word of the Lord. He lets go of what's dead, and he doesn't try to fix it or cover it up. He just says, what do you want me to do next? So in any dead thing in your life, you and if God is like trying to tell you that it's dead, He is not asking you to fix it. And I think a lot of the reason that we get really invested in our dead works is we could not face the reality because we've spent so much time and so much attention and so much of our emotional energy on them that we can't even bear to let them go. And he is saying, and part of it is because we we would not know what to do if we let it go. And he is not asking you to fix your life. He is asking you to let it go, believe him, and just be like Paul and say, what should I do next? This is how we get out of any trouble with the Lord. Is then some We can find ourselves in deep trouble. How, what is the next step? What do you want me to do? And he gave him next steps. So I feel like I told you this was an exhortation, and this is what I'm getting around to, which is um, our consciences, um, if we are proceeding with God, if we're moving forward, they should be getting um, less dull and more, more awake. Um, you know what I mean? Like if you have a limb that's been like numb. Um, I remember like I had epidurals when I had my kids. And it's kind of like, you know, you're like touching your, I don't know if you've ever had one, like numbing. Um, And like slowly they're coming back to life. And your conscience is coming to life. And so when your conscience comes to life, um, there is, there's pain in this. When we make choices to not numb ourselves anymore, there is pain involved. And some of it is okay. And it's something that we have to go through. And some of it, there is a temptation to get off into shame and condemnation, which will just keep us from the Lord. If you have humility and faith inside of you that are catching the words of the Lord, even when they're hard, um, 
you're going to be safe and you can mourn because some things are just dead. You know, some things have been dead for a long time and it is, it's sad, but there is like, there's joy that comes in that morning, morning, <laughs> when the morning comes, when the, when the, the Lord will, um, he, he does that. He's not calling anybody to sit in mourning in perpetuity. Like he doesn't expect us to just sit forever in mourning but some of the stuff we have to move through the mourning process with him because it is dead it takes um it just takes sensitivity to the holy spirit to know when to move on do you know what i'm saying like it like David when he's weeping, when he's had this affair with Bathsheba and, and the child is dead, you know, like when, the, when it's like, okay, no, the child is dead, then he stopped mourning and he washed himself and got back up. Um, there's this little song that Harvest sings. It's like a little acapella at the beginning of their newest album and it just says, I put, I put my tears in the soil, and now I'm reaping shouts of joy. And so we don't collect our own tears. Like, you just have to bury them, give them to the Lord. Um, because when we mourn with him, these dead works <laughs> and the futility of the days spent away from him, um, what he, his intention is to grow... Um, joy and and thanksgiving and dancing and shouts of praise that is where it's going it is not into being sad forever and the lord wants us to believe fervently that we are nothing like we will be in a thousand years you do not you will not look like you in a thousand years this process of sanctification, it's like that sputtering water that's just sort of shooting a little bit out. Like it's, we've only just begun. There's so much hope ahead for us. We are not what we are becoming. And so we must forget what's behind us and run our race. Holy Spirit is not frustrated with you. Holy Spirit is not frustrated with you. The Spirit of Jesus is hopeful. Do you remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it's for the joy set before me. What spirit did Jesus have that told him that there was a joy set before him? It's the Holy Spirit. Is the Spirit of Jesus. It is the Spirit he has given us. It is hopeful and joyful for our future. Holy Spirit was always there, and he knows the depth of all of our depravity, the depths of it. We're starting to mourn because it's starting to be revealed. He always knew how bad it was. The stuff that we don't even know, don't even have a clue to even care about because he's revealing it to us as we can bear. It would crush us if we knew all at one time. He's like, I'm not going to give it to you all at one time. I'll reveal it as you can bear. But he's known it the whole time. The Holy Spirit, um, I was, we were praying about this the other day on Friday. Um, and it's just something that's catching my attention. I feel like it's a whole other message, which is the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And even um, that verse in Isaiah at the beginning, at the very beginning um, that I read, it says, um, about the rod of Jesse, it says the, the spirit will rest upon him. And sometimes I just have this visual of like the Holy Spirit's indwelling and it gives me this picture of like the Holy Spirit stuck inside me and doesn't have a choice because God told Holy Spirit, stay inside. Go in Stephanie and stay there. It's trapped. <laughs> Trying to get out. <laughs> okay, I'm staying here because I was told and that the Holy Spirit is as stuck inside of you as Jesus was stuck on that cross. 
he was a volunteer on that cross. The Holy Spirit is voluntarily staying with you and resting on you. Do you know what it feels like to have like a butterfly land on you? To have a bird land on you? It's like that. It's voluntary. He's making a choice to stay with you day by day because he has faith in the Father's plan. He believes the Father. So he stays with you. He knows the joy that was set before Jesus. He's voluntarily obeying. And he's not frustrated with you. There are greater works ahead of us. That's, um, is that in James? There's greater works for us to do. Um, But it's like Paul, we have to let go of, we have to let go. The more quickly that we're able to be like, well, <laughs> that's dead. <laughs> and, and just not stay married to it, not try to save face, not try to give excuses, not try to retell the story to even our own selves about why that was dead. The lies we tell ourselves, it's so many, and God knows, right? And he's patient with us, and he's calling us out of He's calling us to stop lying, even to our own selves. And he is not calling us into shame and condemnation. It's our pride that has us feeling so shameful that so much of it was dead. Um, But if we can see things from his perspective, that we're babies, that we're just starting, and we have so long to go, and we have forever becoming like him, then it just feels like, well, no, duh, obviously. I'm doing a bunch of stuff wrong. But I'm walking into living works. And that's beautiful. Like, I have, I got so frustrated this week because I just felt myself getting into all kinds of like impatience and um, saying things that I wouldn't have said if I wasn't feeling impatient or just weird like jealousies and and competition coming in and I was like oh I don't like this stuff I'm tired of it and he's like don't get tired of it like you know that you have authority just tell it to go and I did and I'm like but I'm embarrassed because I don't want to say stuff uncontrolled and I I, you know what I mean I don't want to be unloving in the moments and I'm I don't want to and he's like well you're always going to need me and I'm not worried about it. You came back and you told me you're sorry and I picked you back up and you're fine with me. But I want to be perfect apart from him is what it is. I want to be perfect without Jesus, without needing him. This sanctification process is not unto being perfect apart from Jesus. It is unto loving that I cannot be perfect apart from him and wanting nothing more than to hold his hand forever and I just felt like the Lord is saying um, it's so important for us to embrace us in our own lives um, not for our own selves um, but really like we're called to be a witness um, to the church I just even think about like what's going on I have KC and the way that the Lord is shaking them right now we can be a witness of letting go of dead works (laughs) and not Um, trying to like cover up and be ashamed to changing the story so that it's palatable, not being afraid of other people criticizing us and pointing fingers at us and telling us we're bad when we were bad. (laughs) Isn't that funny? It's like, okay, I can deal with just God telling me I'm bad, but when one other person jumps in, I'm like, no, (laughs) it's too much. But he's calling us to be a witness of this in our, in our, in our families, in our households, in this church, and to the church. So I just want to pray for us. Lord, um, just thank you for this encouragement this morning. Um, Lord, thank you. Um, forgive our... Um, just forgive the way that we get confused and turned around in the gospel, the good news that we could get free of our dead works starts to feel like a condemnation instead of freedom. I'm just asking that you would forgive me um, for my shame and my, um, 
my doubt and the ways that I try to hide and I try to um, make um, just my sin and my the works that are dead more palatable. Lord, where I am living um, in the fear of man so much because if it were just you and me, I know that you know and I, you know that I know and, and I don't care. Like we, We're good. We're doing this. But it's the eyes of men that make it so hard. And so, Lord, I pray, make us, make us a house that is free of um, the fear of man. God, I'm, I'm praying, um, I pray right now that you would show us um, just anywhere um, we grew up, especially grew up in households where being wrong carried a big price. And it has shaped the way that we view being wrong for decades. Lord, we say um, we want to be fully adopted by you. We fully want transfership of parenthood to be put into your hands. And so, God, I just pray where um, you want to just um, change our thought patterns and our behavior patterns, our will, our ability to do into your kingdom. I just pray Holy Spirit power on that right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray we would be completely set free, that we would be conformed. Our, our will, our mind, our thinking would be completely transformed. Take us somewhere else, Lord. In Jesus' name.